Uh, good afternoon, Patrick. Very good to see you again. And uh, we're grateful, as always, that you've agreed to speak to us on the uh, marvelous corpus of Richard Schuon. And today you have asked us to focus on the chapter entitled The Exo-Esoteric Symbiosis in the book of Schuon entitled Sufism, Veil yeah. and Quintessence. So over to you. Thank you very much, Reza. Good to see you, and thank you again for your invitation. Um, it's it's a it's a very important chapter. I chose this chapter because it is one of the chapters in which Shion uh, develops most extensively his own vision of what Sufism is. Uh, of course, this is part of the of a book entitled Sufism: Veil and Quintessence. As a, and as many readers of Shion will remember. These two terms, veil and quintessence, referred in a way to what Chuan calls um, possible Sufism and necessary Sufism. So in the title itself, you have veil and you have quintessence. Veil is that aspect of Sufism that may veil or that does veil the divine reality for a variety of reasons in different contexts. And, and these veils from the point of view of Chuan, uh, from the point of view of, from the esoteric point of view of Chuan, present us, or at least present um, those who seek esotericism with challenges. And therefore, they have to be lifted, so to speak, these veils. Um, by contrast, Chuan aims at um, quintessential. Sufism, that is the, the very essence of Sufism, and he seeks, or rather he, he sees this quintessence in the very principles of Islam, in the very foundations of Islam, starting of course with the Shahada, with the testimony, because as you know, he sees the testimony, particularly the first, but also the second testimony, as being a direct enunciation of metaphysical truth that is, of the unicity or unity or non-duality of the real. So that's from, this is the very root of Sufism, and that is the very root of metaphysical, metaphysics, so to speak, in Sufism. But, of course, historically, um, the picture is not so simple. Um, Sufism is a very complex uh, world, uh, on the on the plane of doctrine as well as on the plane of method, um, and uh, one of the reasons why Chuan uh, criticizes some of the um, formulations of classical Sufism is because he sees in them a kind of blend um, between um, authentically metaphysical and spiritual intuitions on the one hand and inspirations. And on the other hand, uh, what he would call, I think, theological interferences. Um, and this theological point of view prevent the metaphysical, metaphysical core, so to speak, of Sufism at times, all too often, to come to the fore. So that's, that's the basic context in which this particular chapter has to be uh, situated. So, in other words, to encapsulate the matter, there is a Sufism that is possible because 
possible here means um, something that is not necessary, but something that may unfold from the Islamic, from the Quranic revelation on the basis of particular inspirations, for example, particular, particular openings. But there is another Sufism that is necessary in the sense that I described earlier, that is, that stems directly from the very foundations and principles of Islam. And it is the esotericism that interests Shion. So that's why one may suggest, uh, quite paradoxically, in a way, that Shion's perspective, <laughs> in a way, of course, um, is more Islamic than Sufi. In a certain mm. way, if, if, one considers Sufism, if one considers Sufism as a historical reality, huh, one could mm. say that. Huh? Uh, one could say that. All right. Mm. So um, now, the, the title of the chapter um, is about is um, symbiosis, exoesoteric symbiosis. So, what does it mean? But it is that precisely this is the aspect of veil of Sufism of the historical Sufism for Shion. There is a symbiosis of the exoteric and of the esoteric, so that the esoteric at times, all too often, is not totally um, is not totally um, available. It's not made available in its most direct uh, uh, aspect. So we have, um, therefore, we have. Um, we must consider, first of all, and I will read here uh, a passage that I will translate from the original, which is very important, uh, which reads... Um, <clears throat> Could you tell us uh, which page? Uh, uh, it, I where, don't where, have, unfortunately, I don't roughly. have the edition here, but it's section... Yeah. It's in the second section of the chapter. This section begins with the words, another mode of knowledge, Yes, I've got it. And about 12 or 13 lines uh, below, we have um, a reference to uh, the uh, unevenness, the diversity and unevenness of Sufi speculations, or Sufi Shia and rabbinical uh, right. speculations. Yeah. Because here, of course, yeah. Sufi Shia and rabbinical speculations, one has the impression that here it is a matter in many of these speculation not to liberate oneself from the cosmic maya but on the contrary to i don't know what the english translation is to see en français which means to to go deep into it um to entrenching oh, yes. in the english we've got entrenching oneself more deeply within it that's right that's that that's 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 the meaning what what uh, was what was the french in french is si enfoncé et se plonger uh -huh. literally to to go deep into it right. that's right and to dive yeah, into it uh exactly. in, a, in a religious mythology hmm, with piety and ingenuity but without desire of um going out of escaping and yeah. to escape it yes so that the notion of esotericism is aleatory in the Semitic monophistic world. So here, in fact, uh, what strikes me as most important in this passage is the notion of cosmic Maya. Because what Shion says is that a, a religion is a cosmic Maya, or it's part of the cosmic Maya. Each religion is a world, it's a cosmos, and this cosmos 
this world, which has its order, which has its beauty, which has its, its meaning, of course, this world, this Maya, is a Maya, precisely. And Maya, as we know from, from Shion's readings of uh, Vedanta, is, uh, has two aspects. Uh, it has a positive aspect in as much as it conveys Atman or something of Atman, but it has also a negative aspect in as much as it uh, veils uh, Atman. So the same could be said analogically, in a more specific sense, of course, of religions. Religions are Maya, are, cosmi are cosmic Maya. And therefore, their prime um, meaning and their prime being is, of course, to convey the reality of truth or the truth of reality. And that's why they are precious and necessary, obviously. But at the same time, they also uh, veil that reality. And that's where, of course, the very distinction between ex the exoteric and the esoteric, which may, of course, vary depending on the tradition in which we situate ourselves, not all esotericism is like any other, of course. In each tradition, there are differences of status, let's say, and nature in esotericism. But by and large, uh, by and large, that aspect of religion that conveys the real in the most direct fashion is esoteric. And that which tends to veil pertain to some aspect of the exoteric, let's put it that way, without entering into mm -hmm. Into, into the details. So what Shion is saying here is that in Sufism, uh, you have a symbiosis, symbiosis of the two, of the exoteric and the esoteric, and therefore that you have to be able to pierce, so to speak, through the veils at times. And, 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 and moreover, here he refers uh, to uh, a bit further, actually, he has a wonderful uh, uh, formula. It's at the very end of this uh, of this section, actually, when he writes, referring to speculations, referring uh, to speculations that are to be found in Sufism, but also in Kabbalah and in and in Shia uh, gnosis. He refers to speculations that give vertigo rather than light. These are the very mm. last words of that particular section. Hmm? Mm. This, this, this vertiginous aspect has to do with um, the cosmic Maya, with the complexity, with the luxuriance, with the sophistication uh, of a Maya. And again, it has its beauty, it has its meaning, it's fascinating. It's fascinating, obviously, and it has fascinated many, uh, but it's not what really interests you. What interests you is, is the light, not, not the vertical. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, hence his, his emphasis on the essential, <laughs> you know, the essential. So, uh, yeah. because the essential is the light, it's not, it's not the luxuriance of the speculations. You see? So, so this right. is very much in the spirit of Chuan. That's also the aspect of simplicity in the best sense of the term, of course. Mm -hmm. By contrast, complexity. Yeah. Patrick, do you mind if I, before you go on to our next point, do you mind if I just read? that paragraph uh, that you began with and then that last couple of sentences yes. in the English so that those who don't have access to the books of Shuan yes. can actually hear the paragraphs that you've just been commenting on yes. in, in, in uh, flowing English translation. So uh, this is at, uh, on page 27 of my edition, uh, which was published in... Uh, 
um, World Wisdom Books, Bloomington, 1981. So this is the bottom of page 87, uh, 27. The fact that the frontier between the supernatural and the natural is not always precise explains the inexhaustible diversity and inequality of Sufi, Shiite, and rabbinical speculations. One has the impression that with many of these speculations, it is not a question of liberating oneself from cosmic maya, but on the contrary, of entrenching oneself more deeply within it, of plunging into religious mythology with piety and ingenuity, but without the desire to escape from it. Thus, the notion of esoterism is fairly precarious in the Semitic monotheistic world, although it is precisely in this world that it is the most necessary. Mm -hmm. Indeed, all too often it conveys either a particularly radical and over-refined exoterism, or else an esoterism that is both fragmentary and vulgarized, hence exoterized. If thou seekest the kernel, thou must break the shell. This maxim, which is as dangerous as it is true, runs the risk of remaining a dead letter in an esoterism conventionally entrenched in dogmatic theology and denominational mythology. So this is uh, very, very nicely, uh, has been nicely commented upon you in terms of the, the, the veil and the quintessence and how cosmic Maya's veil has been actually thickened in a mysterious way in some of these luxuriant speculations, instead of rendering the veil transparent to the metaphysical quintessence. Um, and that's why I like very much the fact that you started by saying, in certain respects, Shuan is more Islamic than Sufi, because he's going to the, he's allowing the quintessential core of the Islamic revelation to stand unveiled by the luxuriant Sufistic speculations, which produce, as we have now at the end of this, this section, uh, more vertigo than light. So this this uh, contrast comes at the end uh, of this. Yes, uh, do you mind if I read it from where he starts yeah, with Christ? No, no, no. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's always better to, to read from Shri himself. Uh, so um, I, I, I'll start from where he says Christ said two things which yes, are equally the last, the last paragraph, yes. Yes. Christ said two things which are equally plausible, mm -hmm. but which at first sight are contradictory. On the one hand, he ordered obedience to the scribes and Pharisees, since they are, quote, seated in the chair of Moses. And on the other, he described many of their prescriptions as, quote, human, which means that tradition comprises or may comprise elements which, without depart mm -hmm. departing from orthodoxy, are, to say the least, unnecessary luxuries and are sometimes harmful to the moral or spiritual essentiality of the divine message. These lowering and alienating elements human, 
without being heterodox, also exist de facto in esoterism, always by virtue of a human margin which heaven concedes to our freedom. It is a question here, not of course of elements which enter directly into the elaboration of sanctity, but of those luxuriant speculations which produce vertigo rather than light. Yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. What, what strikes me in uh, rereading this passage is the, the final um, mention of the elements that enter directly in the elaboration of sanctity. This, mm. is, this is that which in the, in the religion is essential because this is what produces sanctity, which is the aim of the religion. Uh, so there is that, there is the central sap, so to speak, SAP of the religion that produces, that elaborates, it's a beautiful, beautiful expression, the elaboration uh, of sanctity. Mm. And then there is the human margin. This is, this is a notion that you, as you know, developed in another book, I think it's in Esotericism Principle and Human Web, there's a whole chapter devoted to the human margin. And the human margin is. No, that, that, I think that's in the four. It's, it's in the book Form and Substance. Form and Substance. Anyway, there's a whole chapter yeah. about this matter. And the human margin is that aspect of tradition or that aspect of religion that, of course, uh, stems in some way from the revelation, from the central inspiration of the tradition, but which is only possible, and not only possible, but also problematic in some ways it's the uh, it's the human dimension of tradition and today i think this distinction is very important because uh, as you know very well uh, many people for good and bad reasons um, find themselves in this kind of um, difficult relationship with tradition very often they don't understand what it means but even when they understand what it means uh, their, their reflex would be to say, well, tradition, in tradition, you find this evil, you find that evil, you find this abuses, and so on and so forth. And I think it's very helpful in that respect to be able to discern between that which is essential and leads to the elaboration of sanctity and the human margin. Mm -hmm. This distinction is not absolute, obviously. It's not black and white, obviously. Uh, there is also a gray zone in between, and therefore the question that arises is what is essential? Where, where does the essential stop? <laughs> when do we enter into the domain of the human margin? And of course, there is no absolute answer to this question, but one possible answer, however, is um, to, uh, to, 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 to refer simply to um, inwardness, as Sean does, that is, the essence of the religious and spiritual um, impetus is inwardness. Inwardness means the heart, and the heart means unification, and therefore essentiality and simplicity. So to the extent that there is genuine interiorization, of course, on the basis of religion, um, a revelation in religion, but to the extent that there is interiorization, then there, there can be a discernment of that which is essential and that which is not. Mm. And though the distinction is not absolute. And of course, it's, it's, it depends on the circumstances, it depends on the vocations, and 
when I say circumstances, historical circumstances, geographical, cultural, and others. So there is not one answer to this question, but the general tendency has to be, from an esoteric point of view, to go to this in the direction of this essentiality and this and this simplicity in the best sense of the term. Mm -hmm. uh, I think this may also lead us back to your opening statement about um, which I find very striking and actually very um, stimulating the idea that one can actually paradoxically refer to Shuan as being more Islamic than Sufi. Um, and I like this idea very much. And I think what you're saying now about distinguishing between what is where to draw the frontier between the human margin and the elements that enter into the articulation of sanctity and therefore interiorization, where do you draw that boundary? Could one say that in the Shuonian framework, it, we would arrive at a set of criteria for drawing this frontier, this boundary, to the extent that we have grasped in depth what Shuon, I think, calls the idée force in French mm. of the religion, which is very difficult to translate into English. I think I, I think has been translated in esotericism as the presiding idea, mm. but it doesn't convey the same power as the uh, idée force. Yes. <laughs> it doesn't. So uh, could one say that, that one has to somehow imbibe this idée force, this, this force, this propulsive power stemming from the revelation for the particular religion that we're looking at, which is always going to be different. The idée force for different religions are, are very diverse, as diverse as the divine qualities themselves. Um, Another, uh, going back to this idée force, um, and of course, force, as you as you said, uh, means um, strength and power. So this power is um, is that which is most powerful in the tradition from 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 the point of view of its vision of reality, but also from the point of view of its transformative power, precisely. And uh, and that relates to the last chapter of uh, this particular book, which is entitled. Uh, quintessential esotericism of Islam, because in that chapter, to go back to what you were saying about Islam, in that chapter, um, it is interesting to note that Shion proceeds by starting with the arkan, the, the pillars of Islam. Mm. He doesn't start from uh, a particular Sufi teaching or doctrine, but he starts from the, mm. the five pillars of Islam. And he mm. unfold uh, quintessential Sufi spirituality from these uh, these pillars uh, by providing mm -hmm. uh, by providing a spiritual comments on the on the inner meanings of this of these pillars. So mm. I don't want to go to go to this chapter now, but I, I wanted to mention it because it directly relates to what we were discussing. Mm, that, that's very interesting, and uh, also it reminds me of something that. Um, what Dr. Lings used to say about the perennial philosophy. And he would say that our perspective is, is more Quranic than Islamic. Mm, yes, yes. And he would say that the, the explicit verses in the Quran relating to the, um, the wide embrace 
of all believers of all traditions and the, the flinging open of the gates of paradise to all of those who believe in God and the day of judgment and who act virtuously, irrespective of religious denomination. Verse 262 and repeated in 360 something, uh, he would say that these verses are absolutely clear in terms of their universality, but the commentators of the Quran have shouted down the Quran mm -hmm. because of a Muslim prejudice that Islam must be put above all of the other religions. And so Dr. Lings would say that with great um, uh, gusto, let's say, that yes. the, the Mufassirun, the traditional commentators, have been shouting down the literal meaning of the Quranic verses by resorting to fancy strategies of abrogation and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas normally in other traditions, one finds that the commentators have to perform clever strategies to include universality because the literal meaning is so exclusive. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Lins would say that, and coming back to our subject here, he also would, would quote often the words of Shuan uh, about the idée force, the presiding idea that, and I can't remember where Shuan wrote this, but Lings would, would repeat this at appropriate moments in his discourses, saying that uh, Shuan has said that let, and it is not verbatim, from memory, let a spiritual idea be launched with all the force required to make of it a vehicle for a religion in the Kali Yuga, in the dark age that we're in, and it will soon be followed in its train by a host of pious absurdities. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, uh, it, it, it makes full sense, of course, that the, this perspective would be more Quranic than Islamic in as much as, of course, the Quran is the is the fountain of grace. So he's the closest to the origin, therefore the closest to the universality in that sense also. Um, on the side of the tradition and its various crystallization, you mentioned the, 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 the pious strategies of commentators who tend to limit, so to speak, this, this universality. Um, there is actually also a, um, a passage on the, of this particular chapter in which uh, Chion makes the point that um, this exclusivism uh, is also, from a certain point of view, quite legitimate and necessary. It's a protective strategy, uh, which is unavoidable in one way or another in any, in any tradition. One cannot expect, in other words, a religion uh, to claim universality <laughs> as, a, as, a for, as, a, as, as a formal system uh, it cannot be fully universal. It, can, it is universal, of course, in its, in its center, in its core, in, its, in, the, in the most intimate uh, um, source of its, of, its, of its reality. But as a formal system, it is, and it has to be in some ways, um, uh, exclusive of, uh, of a, a perspective. Um, right. Well, here again, I think it, it um, is something interesting that reinforces your definition of or uh, designation of Shuan as being more Islamic than Sufi, because uh, uh, doesn't he say somewhere that Islam is, is like Gnosis in religious form? 
It's the closest that you can yes. come in religious form to the expression of gnosis. Yes. And therefore, moving away even from the so-called mystical side of Islam and going to, to its directly metaphysical core is uh, a movement that Shuan would encourage us to make. Um, but I have to ask you a question on this subject. Um, uh, when Shuan criticizes the likes, in this book he does it, but not in this chapter, uh, but he does criticize in this book, uh, he criticizes Ibn Arabi, the Shaykh al-Akbar, for criticizing the Prophet Joseph in relation to the Prophet Muhammad, saying that our Prophet Muhammad was much, much greater than Joseph, and that uh, Joseph was just one uh, manifestation of one dimension of the prophet of the Muhammadan reality, and that uh, he misunderstood the uh, nature of his dreams and thinking that the tap wheel of the dream was was the fact that his mother, father, and brothers bowed down to him, and he said, "This is the tap wheel, the fulfillment of my dream: the sun and the moon and the stars bowing down to me." And Ibn Arabi criticizes him. Uh, for this saying that no joseph got it wrong because this whole world is a dream and that his dream was a dream within a dream and our prophet told us this because he said all men are asleep and when they wake when they die they wake up mm -hmm. and so ibn arabi makes this criticism of joseph in order to highlight the greatness of the metaphysical perfection of muhammad and so shuan criticizes ibn arabi for this now could we not from an exoteric Muslim perspective, could we not criticize Shuan mm -hmm. and say, well, what you're criticizing is actually a necessary defensive reflex of even the greatest Sheikh of Sufism for the sake of the religious form of Islam, mm -hmm. a form which to some extent will convey its universal quintessence, but for the sake of upholding the form, aqua oh. form, he has to try, he has to criticize the other prophets. Yes, but precisely if that is the case, um, then um, in a way, um, Ibn Arabi does not um, does not um, identify with the highest gnosis because the highest gnosis or, would be independent. Or, or he chooses, from a certain point of view, to enter particular limitations uh, for reasons that, for reasons that we we, we may not know. Uh, oppor opportunity, opportun opportunity, in some ways. Exactly. But I think the, yeah. the point that Shion is making is that is that um, there is a certain contradiction or tension, at least in in many Sufis, in that on the one hand they appear to embody gnosis, full gnosis, but on the other hand. Uh, they uh, enter into this kind of limitations that you described with Ibn Arabi, and therefore they are not fully consistent. And I think that's the meaning right. of this exo-esoteric symbiosis, in a way. That's, that's, that's the very problem, what you point out is the very problem. Um, so, now, for the question of universality, precisely, there's a, there's a very uh, interesting passage in the chapter in which, you know, very often one, one refers today to Sufism as being universalist or universal, and certainly, uh, it's, it's most likely true that Sufis have been by and large more open to other religions throughout the ages than, than other Muslims. Um, but she always making the point, and maybe we could read the passage now. Uh, 
that the type of universality that you find among Sufis, among classical Sufis particularly, is not necessarily to be taken uh, as a full recognition of the validity of other traditions and is not necessarily to be equated with the perspective of perennialism as we do, or the transcendent unity of religion as we know it today. So this passage is uh, toward the end of the of the pack of the chapter, and if you actually if you like to read in the in the English text perhaps yeah, yes or do you prefer me to translate literally? Um, it's the very last section. No, the last before the last section of the chapter, which starts with the words, "As it is in the nature of esotericism to recognize the essence and so forth." Um, and uh, yes, the, the particular passage I have in mind, or if you like to read it all, perhaps all the, the first. Actually, you know what? what, what may, may, may I suggest, um, and maybe we could do this in the future as well. From now on, this is a precedent. Why don't you read the French paragraph in French? Oh, the Fr in French, in French, yes, in French, and then I'll trans. I'll read the English translation. Exactly, exactly. Yes, just the paragraph. So. <clears throat> Comme il est dans la nature de l'ésotérisme de reconnaître l'essence qui par définition est une dans toutes les formes, soit religieuses, soit sapientielles, et par conséquent de se montrer tolérant dans la mesure de ce qui est pratiquement possible, on peut s'étonner de rencontrer chez les soufis non seulement de l'étroitesse confessionnelle, mais aussi de l'intolérance. Simple manque d'informations dans beaucoup de cas, mais néanmoins manque d'imagination spirituelle dans d'autres et en conséquence par rapport au principe d'essentialité et d'universalité. Même quand il n'est pas ainsi, il faut accueillir les déclarations d'universalité avec prudence, car il arrive qu'elles englobent aussi les idolâtres, en sorte qu'on ne sait pas si la tolérance vise des religions articulées ou simplement une sorte de religion naturelle, sous-jacente et inconsciente, qui se réfère à la divinité parce que tout s'y réfère. Dans ce mmh. cas... L'attestation d'universalité est censée témoigner de l'élévation d'esprit du soufi et non de la validité des religions étrangères. Du reste, de telles attestations sont parfois suivies de passages établissant la suprématie de l'islam, ce qui ne saurait s'expliquer pour des raisons de prudence, par des raisons de prudence, car si l'on doit tellement craindre les oulémas, mieux vaut ne pas parler d'universalité, à moins qu'il y ait une sorte de dédoublement de l'esprit, comme dans le cas de la double vérité du Moyen Âge chrétien. En quel cas, ou en quel cas, il est difficile de savoir où mettre l'accent ou quel est le degré de transparence de la ligne de démarcation. C'est amusant la façon dont il l'a mis. C'est très amusant. Mais je ne peux pas m'aider à répondre sur la part d'un Ibn Arabi ou d'un Rumi qui fait la même chose by saying that uh, yes it's true that you know we ought not to be speaking about these things uh in, if we're so frightened of the ulama that we have to then go back into these limitations but i i can almost hear them saying rumi and ibn arabi that if we don't go into this particularism the supremacy of islam and so on then we will not persuade the those ulama who might otherwise be persuaded of yes. a degree of universal so yes. it encourages the ulema who are in two minds as it were that there is right. part of their orientation 
You know, we had, this is a very lively debate even today among the ulama as to whether Ibn Arabi can be regarded as a true Muslim or as a kafir. And the majority, thankfully, have given fatwa saying he is a Muslim, but precisely because of his of what he does here. And, and Shuan is implicitly referring, I think, to the famous uh, poem of Ibn Arabi, Laqad Qabilan. My heart has become capable of all forms, and they're not just the tables of the Torah, the Quran, and so on, but he also says, and the uh, temple for the idols. And, and then the in his and the gazelles and the gazelles, the pasture for the gazelles and everything. So then in his commentary, which was precisely written for the ulama who were uh, scandalized by what he was writing, in his commentary he says that the you know on the part adinu bidin al hub. Yes. I follow the religion of love. love. Whichever way love's caravans go, that is my religion. Love is my religion. Love is my faith. And then he comments on this for the sake of the ulama, saying that this religion of love is Islam. Mm -hmm. Because Muhammad mm -hmm. is the only prophet that is called Habiballah, yes. the beloved of God. So this, I think, is exactly what... Um, Chuan's referring to. Anyway, so let's read exactly, the English. Exactly, because it's yeah. my heart. It's my heart. So the matter, as Chuan said, is my heart, but is it's the elevation of spirit of the, spirit. Of the Sufi. Mm -hmm. And here exactly. it's also the 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 the, 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 the Akbari notions of the Tajaliya, the, 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 the self-disclosures uh, of, of of God. So religions are self-disclosures of God as everything else. In a way, exactly. as nature is also self-disclosure of God. So I think that's what Shion is po is pointing here when he speaks about the natural, a kind of natural religion, subjacent and unconscious. Uh, uh, yes, you know, well, is religion. I, I should, so I better read the English because our listeners haven't yes, heard the English. True, so we forgot to read the English. <laughs> As, as it is in the nature of esotericism to recognize the essence, which by definition is one, in all forms, either religious or sapiential, and consequently to be tolerant, as far as is practically possible, one may be surprised to find in the Sufis not only denominational narrowness, but also intolerance. Mere lack of information in many cases, and yet lack of spiritual imagination in others, and an inconsistency with regard to the principle of essentiality and universality. Even when such is not the case, one has to welcome declarations of universality with prudence, for it can happen that they also embrace idolaters, so that one does not know whether the tolerance has in view formulated religions, or simply a sort of underlying and unconscious natural religion, which refers to the divinity as everything does. In the latter case, the attestation of universality is meant to testify to the loftiness of spirit of the Sufi, and not to the validity of other religions. Moreover, such declarations are sometimes followed by passages establishing the supremacy of Islam, which cannot be explained simply by reasons of prudence, for if one must fear the ulama to such an extent, it would be better not to speak of universality, unless it be a question here of a kind of dividing of the mind, as in the case of the double truth 
of the Christian Middle Ages, in which case it is difficult to know where to place the accent or to what degree the line of demarcation is clear. It's interesting that so, the last, uh, the last uh, passage uh, about the double truth seems to indicate mm. that there could be in a given Sufi two different uh, truths and in a way two subjectivities perhaps. Yes, exactly. There is a, there's, a, there's a central subjectivity, uh, quasi-divine subjectivity, if I may put it this way, uh, that is of course centered on universality. And there's another subjectivity which, which participates in a particular ambience, in a particular religious context, and therefore is in solidarity with it. Exactly. Uh, and I think th this goes back to the two um, functions uh, ascribed to the Prophet of Islam by Shuan in this book as well. I think it's in the chapter Paradoxes of an Esoterism or in the uh, Hyperbole in Arab Rhetoric, um, where he says that the Prophet at times speaks in his capacity as the founder of a particular tradition. And in this case, one has statements that are very exclusivist. And at other times, he's speaking from the point of view of what in Islam would be called, what Ibn Arabi would refer to as the duodimensionality constituted by walaya and nubuwa. Yes. Yes. Those elements that directly enter into the articulation of sanctity, walaya, and yes. therefore primordial universality, primordiality, essentiality, whereas Nubuwa is all about establishing a particularity, therefore exclusivism, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So I think this double subjectivity, the double truth that you uh, uh, underlined here, actually does go back to almost like a participation of the great Sufis in that duodimensionality of Walaya, in which they participate directly, but also their responsibility towards Nubuwa, which is to uphold the particularity and therefore, in historical terms, the supremacy of Islam. Where they all do that, you know, where, and this is something that was very striking in my, my research for the book, The Other and the Light of the One. I noticed that whether it was Kashani or Rumi or Ibn Arabi, they all have to assert in some place, the supremacy, the, the, the fact that Islam is the best religion. Even if they're saying precisely because it has a place for all other religions, they still have to have that, that aspect emphasized. The only exception that I found was Halaj. Yes, in, in, po in poetry. Mm. In poetry. When he speaks about the, the branches, the, exactly. the religions as the branches of the same tree. But I wondered, you know, uh, what you were saying that, that was, was interesting in relation to the, the fact that I think it's Tirmidhi, right, who established that the, this, for the first time this, this, this distinction between sanctity, wilaya, and nubuwa. And if I'm not mistaken, he states that wilaya is, is, is superior to nubuwa, right? So in that sense, Well, actually, I have to stop you just for a second from a historical point of yes. view, because what Tirmidhi is expressing is something that was already very clearly established in the sayings of the Shiite Imams, ah. where Walaya, yes, Walaya, the Imamate, mm -hmm. in some mysterious esoteric way is considered to be superior to Nabuwa, which is where you get some of the extremist Shiites who say that Ali was greater than 
Muhammad. It comes from certain sayings about the the aspect of Walaya being the pole around which all the scriptures and all the religions devolve. So yes, Timothy though first formulated it explicitly as a doctrine. Yes. So. And the other point about Islam, that is the affirmation of the superiority of Islam, of course, one, one could also take it from another angle, which would be that um, Islam obviously can be understood also on different levels. Uh, so, of course, in these cases, since the matter is to compare, quote unquote, Islam with other religions, one understands it as referring to the particular religion or message brought by the Prophet Muhammad, right? But at the same time, the depth of Islam is religion as such, or the Deen al-Qayyim, or the religio perennis. So from a certain point of view, when one says Islam, one may also mean, on some level, that universal religion, that's okay. your religion. Um, that's that's a possibility to consider too. Uh, a, a little bit like, um, well, maybe this analogy is a bit a bit odd, but uh, you know, in the Hindu world, a, a Shivaite may consider Shiva as a particular god, distinct from Vishnu and Brahma and others. But there is also Parama Shiva, which is mm. as the absolute, right? So there is an analogy here, and, and that's the same Shiva in a certain sense considering mm. different levels, right? So perhaps mm -hmm. something analogical could be applied to the case of Islam, where Islam yes. is the, 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 meta, the universal metaphysical re reality, even beyond, by the way, religious messages. Islam, in mm. the sense of which the Quran states that animals, birds, and, 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 and stars are in a state of Islam also. So anyway. That's right. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's absolutely... Uh, you're making me think of Jalaluddin Rumi here, <laughs> who is probably even more famous than Ibn Arabi for his embrace of, of all uh, religions. And um, again, it's in obviously his Masnavi where he expresses this. Um, but here we have uh, the two subjectivities very clearly established. Now, I think that here. Islam in its universal and quintessential sense is expressed in the poetry, but in his uh, Kitab Fihi Ma Fihi, mm -hmm. the book where his, his discourses are just given, obviously uh, he was speaking spontaneously in response to questions and then his disciples would write it down afterwards. And it's uh, simply called the Kitab Fihi Ma Fihi, the, the book that contains what it contains. Yes. There's no title to the book. <laughs> yes, Chion, you might recall that Chion actually uh, refers to that title in one of his books. He said that the most difficult yeah. thing to find is the title for a book. Sometimes one exactly. would like to give to a book <laughs> the, the one that contains what it contains. Fihimai. That's it. That's it. That's it. And, and so actually Chion also cites uh, several lines from one of the poems of Rumi about uh, what do you make of this, O Muslims, that my, I don't recognize myself. I am uh, I'm neither Christian nor Zoroastrian nor Muslim nor Jew, you know, all of them. 
I am neither Zoroastrian nor Muslim. And then at the end, it, it goes into this crescendo of unity. Um, but also in his poem, in the Masnavi, this is from the Divani Shams, uh, or in his one of his other collections. But uh, in his Masnavi, Rumi says that the Millate Eshq, the religious community of love, as Hamidin Ha Jodast, is separate from all religions. Millate Eshq, as Hamidin Ha Jodast. Ashikan Ra Mazhabu Millat Chodast. It's an incredible way he makes Chodast, which means God is God, rhyme with Jodast, which is separate is separate from all so all you know the, the religious community the religious nation you might say of of love is separate from all religions for true lovers religion and milla is god mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so you can't get any more universalist than that yes, and so this is the quintessential view but then in his discourses he is uh speaking to a christian and asking him why do you remain a christian mm. and the man says well because my forefathers are christians he said is that the answer of an intelligent man <laughs> if you're intelligent you should see that whatever god gave jesus he gave muhammad and more mm. so why do, you see, I mean, obviously, Rumi was not someone who was going around encouraging people to convert, mm -hmm. but he did allow this discourse to be uh, recorded, written down, and given to the world. So he was happy with this uh, exoteric statement of the supremacy of Islam, even though it goes, everyone knew what he really stood for, essentially. But in his formal interactions, given the contingent circumstances, the interconnection of different religions as forms, on that level he would say, and I think he would say with all his heart, and not simply from the point of view of opportuneness, I think he would say, become a Muslim, yes. enter Islam. You will get everything that you have in Christianity and more, the latest revelation from the same God. Anyway, so did you, did you want to go on to um, any other? Well, I think for today we probably have enough, right? Because we have 40 minutes. Yes. Uh, so that's probably, but maybe next time we can uh, discuss other aspects of the chapter. Well, there is one, right. perhaps a final, a final, I don't know. I think we've already, we are quite beyond 40 minutes, but uh, probably, but just in case, there is, of course, a very, um, a very striking passage in this chapter that deserves being mentioned. It's toward the end, and it's this chapter in which Xion um, distinguishes between what he calls the divine stratosphere of religion mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the human atmosphere. So we go back, in fact, in a way to this, the two subjectivities, but this time from the point of view of the, of the uh, religious, um, uh, religious uh, cosmic, uh, uh, religious cosmos or, or, or religious maya. There is the, the human atmosphere, which in a sense is the, is the religious maya, and there is the divine stratosphere, which is, um, in fact, ultimately God, huh? like in Rumi, what you were mentioning about Rumi. Rumi is the, is the principle, I mean, the, the God is the principle, God is the very akika, the very reality, that is the essence of all religions. 
So this passage is toward the end. It results from all these considerations that God is, is the same for all religions only in the divine stratosphere and not in the, in the human atmosphere. In the latter, each religion has practically its own God. And there are as many gods as there are religions. Mm. In, this, in this sense, one could say that only esotericism or esotericism only is absolutely monotheistic. Mm. Since uh. it recognizes only one religion uh, in, in, in various forms. For if it is true, mm. while it is true that the form is in a certain manner the essence, the essence, on the other hand, is in no way the form. Mm. The drop is water, but water is not the drop. Excellent, so is, yes. So, so this is... That, that, that's, a, that's a marvelous, marvelous paragraph. And there is another passage in which um, Shu actually refers to religions as kind of heresies <laughs> mm. in relation to the religio penis. Uh, so it runs parallel to this, in fact. To say that only esotericism is absolutely monotheistic amounts mm. to saying that um, that religions are, in a way, heretical in relation to this monotheism. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, there's a, a, prof, a prophetic utterance that is very, very heavy with implication. It's pregnant with meaning. Uh, and so far as I remember it, it's as follows. Inna mimma adrakanas min kalami nubuwatil ula I don't know how well authenticated the saying is, um, but it says in translation, um, among the words that were revealed in the prime in the first prophecy. Yes, yes. Is Nubuwa al Ula. Yes. The, the primary, the, the first, mm. was this. Uh, if it does not make you feel ashamed, mm -hmm. do whatever you wish. Yes, yes. It's in the, it's it's very in the collection, uh, it's in the 40 hadith of Nawawi. Nawawi. Is it? Is it? Yes. Well, yes. That, means, that, means it must, yes. that means it must be very well authenticated. Um, but it, it's very, very, I, for me, it's, it makes me think of, uh, of the saying of Jesus, be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And in a way, all of religion is summed up in that. And as soon as you need to elaborate on the rules and regulations as to how to perfect yourself or how to, to awaken the sense, you're moving away from that, the sole source of spiritual enlightenment, which is your own primordial human nature. So the fitra is the only religion that is perfectly, quote, orthodox. And then all religions that come subsequently, insofar as they are historical superimpositions upon this spiritual infrastructure, all of them can be regarded as relatively superficial and, if, if we want to go all the way with Shuan, relatively heretical vis-a-vis -vis the true orthodoxy, which is the fitra, the primordial religion, 
human nature in its quintessence, which is made in the image of God. It's a bit like what Eckhart says, that as soon as I pray for Heinrich or Conrad, I am praying for evil. <laughs> if I pray for anything except for God, to God, through God, then it's evil I'm praying for. And then also when Eckhart says that the more he blasphemes, the more he praises God, one could almost convert in a turn that around and say the more he's praising a God that is other than his own quintessence, yes. Yes. he is blaspheming. So the one who's praising God is the blasphemer, and the one who's the blasphemer is actually praising God. Mm. Whether Eckhart would go along with that concomitant, I don't know, but it's playing with these striking and rather, you know, supralogical uh, ideas that uh, help us to see the uh, degree to which our opinions of what is orthodox and what is not are, to quote Schumann here, aléatoire, mm. precarious, fragile. Heresy, heresy, as you know, means originally choice. Also, no, I didn't know that. I yeah, didn't know that. But iresis in Greek means choice. So in a sense, it's a, it's a limitation. It's a limitation. It's a delimitation. It's a choice that excludes uh, other possibilities. So uh, that sheds light also on what Sean writes about religions being. Mm, but mm. also, uh, um, what you were saying about about the fitra could be translated um, mutatis mutandis in Christian terms with Saint Augustine's famous statement love and do what you please i think so and do what you want love and do what you want so here it's love which is the which is the divine reality itself and which is the essence of all religions and if you have love you have everything uh, perfect it's a, it's a it's a it's a different way of saying the same the same thing mm, mm. Mm. One also thinks here of, of Martin Luther, who says, if you're going to sin, then sin robustly. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because the more, I don't know quite how he explains it, but he says, if you're going to sin, do it well, do it robustly, because you have a great redeemer in jesus christ who yes, will forgive yes. you whatever sins you commit yes, so yes, again yes. it's the kind yes. of koan like paradox yes, yes, yes. Um, uh, patrick before we finish could i just ask you to give us that wonderful phrase um, that instruction that great teaching of saint augustine where he said love and do whatever you wish could you give it to us in the latin again please yes it is ama et fac quod vis Mm, excellent. That's extremely inspiring and a wonderful note on which to finish this discussion. And from the bottom of my heart, I thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.